And so when I first became a Christian, it would frustrate me when I heard older saints talk about death. They talked about death really flippantly, at least in my mind. It was frustrating because I was 17 years old and I was looking forward to the rest of my life. I was looking forward to getting married, having children. I wanted to see the world. Truth be told, there's still a lot I want to do in this life. So much so that if you ask me today, are you ready to die? My honest answer would be, no, probably not, not yet. And that doesn't mean I don't have confidence that when I pass that I will be in the presence of Christ. It simply means that I still believe there's more life for me to live. That's why this passage is difficult for me. Not because it's hard to figure out what he means, but because I struggle with Paul's approach to death. Let me explain what I mean. I don't struggle with what his approach is. I struggle with how he's able to do it. Now, I would venture to say that I'm not the only one in this room who struggles with Paul's seemingly flippant approach to death, but, but I actually think Paul knows this which is one of the reasons why he's writing to the Philippians. Remember what he said in verse 12. He said, I want you to know, and we are still in the I want you to know section, which means that he's writing to instruct, but I also think he's writing to inspire. Paul is in prison. He's going to stand trial. He's about to enter a situation where death is a very real possibility. How he carries himself matters. Moments like these are make-or-break moments. If he shrinks back and saves his own skin, what confidence does that give to those who have followed him throughout the years? But if he stays the course, his confidence and his hope will be infectious, serving as an encouragement not only for the Philippian church, but for generations to come. On the morning of April 9th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by the Nazis for participating in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. His last words, as remembered by a captured Royal Air Force pilot, were, this is for me the end, the beginning of life. This is for me the end, the beginning of life. Now, there are so many stories of Christians throughout the centuries who have looked death in the eye with nothing but confidence. And I believe that Paul's words in Philippians are part of the reason why. What we'll learn this morning is that Paul was not alone as he awaited trial, but that he was accompanied by the spirit of Jesus Christ and the prayers of God's people. And I am confident that the same spirit which was supplied to Paul was also supplied to Bonhoeffer. And I can only imagine that the many individuals who were impacted by Bonhoeffer's ministry throughout the years were on their knees praying for him. Our passage this morning provides us with an inspiring example of what it looks like to walk in faithfulness even amid great suffering and trial. But more importantly than an inspiring story, it also teaches us that there is real help that comes through the Spirit of God and the prayers of the saints, particularly in the midst of trials and difficulties. 
And so let's jump into our text. Like I said, we are in Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at that first section, Paul's deliverance, verses 18b through 20. And so Paul was just rejoicing because he knew that regardless of his circumstances and regardless of the impure motives of certain preachers, the good news of King Jesus was advancing. We talked about that last week. Our text this morning builds on what we saw last week as Paul further explains the source of his joy and the foundation of his confidence. So let's take a look. Let's read these first couple of verses. It says this, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. A couple of observations. So he says, yes, and I will rejoice. I actually believe it makes more sense to translate this more literally. But I will also rejoice. So, but I will also rejoice because I know. I will also rejoice. So he, so he gives us this first section of rejoicing that we looked at last week, and now he's building on it. So not only will I rejoice because the gospel advances, but I will also rejoice because I know. And what does he know? He knows that this will turn out for my deliverance, that this will turn out for my deliverance. That word deliverance is the same word as salvation. So he knows the reason why he's... The reason why he's rejoicing is because he knows something specific, that this thing that he's going through, most likely his imprisonment and the trial that he's awaiting, will turn out for his deliverance or his salvation or his vindication. And how does he know? He knows through the prayers, through your prayers, the prayers of the Philippians, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Help of the Spirit doesn't really capture what Paul is saying here. Rather, what Paul is conveying That in the midst of this difficulty, God will supply him with the spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this elsewhere, this idea of being filled with the spirit of God. And and in in particular, I want to just turn back, you might even just turn back one page in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And I just want to read a passage, verses 15 and following. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so really quick, what Paul is doing here, he's warning the church in Ephesus to be careful in how they live because the days are evil. He then commands them to not get drunk with wine, which is more than a command to not drink too much, but rather to protect oneself from being caught up in the evil of the world. He then commands them to be filled with the Spirit, which is such an interesting command. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Lee, be filled with the Spirit. Do it now. 
right? That's a weird command. That's confusing. But it's actually not that confusing because then he gives this list. He gives this list of participles. It's a, it's a type of grammatical sort of idea and construct, whatever. I'm not going to get into the particulars. But, but what he's actually saying is there's a way to be filled with the Spirit. He says, be filled with the Spirit by addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, and giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, and by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's actually providing a list that, that teaches us how we might be filled with the Spirit. And it's interesting because that list requires one another. We actually need one another in order to walk out this faith, in order to participate in what the Spirit is doing, in order to be filled with the Spirit. And so hold on to that for a little bit. He says that this will turn out for my deliverance. The this that will turn out for his deliverance appears to be the circumstances that Paul finds himself in. He's in prison, whether that be in Rome or Ephesus, and he's going to stand trial because of his beliefs and the practices surrounding the purse and work of Jesus. And so commentators are a little divided on what it means, whether deliverance or salvation refers to him being freed from prison or if there's an eschatological or final salvation in view. And so let's dig into this a little bit. Paul is actually quoting from the book of Job, chapter 13, verse 16. If you don't know anything about Job, it's a story about a righteous man who loses everything at the hands of a spiritual being known as the Satan, a figure in the Bible who stands in opposition to the plans and purposes of God. In chapter 13, Job is responding to a friend who, in an effort to comfort Job, ends up accusing him, saying that he's to blame for all that has happened to him. And Job's response, in a nutshell, is that he is innocent and that when he stands before God, he will be vindicated. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. And so what Paul's doing, he's saying, I'm like Job, I'm innocent, and I'm going to stand before this trial, but you know what? I'm actually going to be vindicated. It will turn out for my salvation. It will turn out for my deliverance. Not necessarily that I will be delivered from prison, but it will turn out for my vindication. It will turn out for my salvation. But, but there's more. While I believe there is this final or eschatological salvation in view, there's also something immediate going on. Verse 20, let me read it again. It says this. Lost my spot here. As it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul says that he possesses an eager expectation and a hope that he will not be ashamed, meaning that he's looking forward to and he's confident that when he stands trial, he will not deny the faith. That's what's going on here. He knows that in the moment he stands trial, when they place him before the, the Praetorian guards, whatever, the, 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 I can't think of all the words right now, but whatever, when he stands trial, he's not going to deny the faith. Even as death is staring him in the face, he will not deny the faith. And not only will he not deny the faith, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in his body. And that word, full courage, is actually a speech word that he will proclaim boldly. He will proclaim boldly. What's he going to proclaim? Well, what does Paul always proclaim? The good news of King Jesus. And he's not worried 
what's going to happen to him. It says that that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so why I know that this deliverance and salvation can't mean that he's going to be set free from prison is because he's not sure. He's like, I know Christ will be honored, but I might die or I might live. But it'll still turn out for my salvation, meaning that the prayers of the saints and the supply of the Spirit are going to carry him through when he stands trial and as he enters into the next life. You guys catch that? See, this is why this is an important passage. Like, there's, there's so many pe- portions of this passage that we quote, you know, to live is Christ, to die is game. We love that stuff. That's, again, that's another coffee mug verse that we put on our desk or whatever. But what he's basing his confidence in is, is the supply of the Spirit which comes because he is participating and he has, he has fellow workers in the Philippians who are praying for him. And then if we look back at Ephesians, there's a way to be filled with the Spirit. What does Paul do when he's in jail? What, what do we know that Paul does? What does he do? He sings. He worships. Right? So Paul is, is a living testimony to what it looks like to keep in step with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to be supplied with the Spirit. I want to make it clear. Yes, we are saved and we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. But Paul seemed to, seems to indicate that throughout our walk with God, he supplies us with the Spirit. He fills us with the Spirit in a way that helps us in particular situations. I've heard it said that that when you're going through a difficult time, that God will give you the grace to handle that particular time. Has anyone ever heard that before? Of course we've heard that before, right? But how do you think he's helping us? He's helping us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's a big deal. And, and, more, and, and not more importantly, but just as important are the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ. The prayers of one another. And so Paul's situation is dire, but the prayers of the saints and a fresh supply of the Spirit will enable him to stand firm and proclaim the good news of Jesus. He will not be put to shame. He will not be put to shame. What does that mean for us? Well, there's some massively important theology being both modeled and taught here by Paul. Right? There's a very real possibility that Paul will die. That can very easily happen in this situation. Yet in the midst of this, he's able to rejoice. He's able to rejoice because he is confident. I'll ask the question again, but where does his confidence come from? And so I want to I I say something I think that's really important. We are going to suffer in this life. That's guaranteed. Right? If I ask for a show of hands, how many of you have gone through a difficulty, trial, or suffering, every hand would shoot up. Every hand. We are going to suffer in this life. That suffering might come because of our faithfulness or it might come as a result of living in a broken and fallen world. Either way, suffering provides us with an opportunity to demonstrate to a watching world the love and goodness of God. And Paul teaches us that we experience the love and goodness of God, that peace that surpasses all understanding. Again, that's another coffee mug verse, right? That peace that surpasses all understanding because of the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ and a fresh supply of the Spirit when we need it. When we need it. 
See, Paul is, 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 is reminded in a, in a supernatural way of where his citizenship truly lies, which enables him to stare death in the face with confidence that this is not the end. Remember Bonhoeffer. Remember Paul. Remember Christ, who died on the cross and then three days later was vindicated, risen from the dead. Proved to be the righteous son of God. This is the story that we walk in. We walk in the story of Christ and the same way Paul walked in that story. And then we walk in that story as well. We will be struck down, but we will not be destroyed. The spirit sustains us. The prayers of one another sustain us. I I mean, that's just massively important, Redeemer Fellowship. Because I think what we often do with prayer is that, is that we pray, right? But I don't know if we fully wrap, I know I don't fully wrap my mind around the, the, the weight of what it means to be prayed for and pray for another. And I think what we often do is, is we'll tell someone we're praying for them. And, and has anyone ever told you that they prayed for you? And how did that make you feel? Feels good, right? Like, oh, thank you so much. It also feels good when someone says, my thoughts are with you, right? That feels good when they're thinking of you. But I, but I would venture to say that most of us lump it all in the same category. Like, oh, they're, they're with me in this. They're thinking about me. But there's something massively different about someone's thoughts being with you and someone praying for you. There's something massively different because when your thoughts are with you, that's sweet, that's good, that's wonderful. I'm not against it. Cool, thank you for thinking of me. But when you pray for someone, you are actually participating in this cosmic thing where you are actually engaging with the heavenly places, with God Almighty himself, to act on behalf of that person. And guess what? God does act on behalf of people. I don't understand how it works because I fully believe in the sovereignty of God that he is in control of all things, yet somehow prayer does affect change in this world. And I I don't fully understand, and it's one of those things that we call mystery, and I'm perfectly content with mystery. Some people aren't content with mystery. Some people want to figure it all out. I am perfectly content with mystery. It makes my life easier to just be like, yeah, mystery. I just, that's what I do. I just say, someone asks me a question, I don't know, mystery. It's, it's helpful. It's helpful. So now remember that passage from Ephesians. We are filled with the Spirit by living with one another in specific ways, by worshiping God together, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Practicing gratitude and thanksgiving together, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what we see here in Philippians, praying for one another. Praying for one another. In fact, what this passage is teaching us is that there is a participation that we are invited into between us and God, that our prayers work in conjunction with God as he supplies the spirit of Jesus Christ to those who are experiencing times of pain. And that is where our confidence And our hope arises from. And it's the very thing that keeps us from denying Christ, even in our darkest hours. When Job lost everything, his wife told him to curse God and die. That's the story of Job. That happens. But he fought with everything he had to maintain his faith, and God kept him until the end. The text goes on, verses 21 through 24. Paul now further explains why he is confident. 
that he will not be ashamed when he stands trial, even if it results in his death. And, and mind you, if it does result in his death, that means that onlookers would perceive him to be a criminal. He'd be labeled a criminal. It's because for Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, he's got nothing to lose. He's got nothing to lose. Let's see what the text says, verses 21 through 24. It says, for whether by life or by death, no, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And so Paul says that to live is Christ, meaning that the life of Paul, or the life of any follower of Jesus, is caught up in the life of Christ. We belong to Christ. We are in union with Christ. Our former selves are hidden Within Christ, in the words of Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so our very existence as followers of Jesus is a member of the body of Christ. We represent God here on earth. When people look at us, it is their picture of what Jesus might look like. Maybe not necessarily physically, but, but I think you understand what I'm getting at. He then says that to die is gain, which he'll explain in just a minute. But then he explains what living provides him. It provides him with fruitful labor, meaning that he will be continued to be used by God for the advancement of the gospel. While death, he argues, is far better because he will depart and be with Christ. And so there's this language of which he will choose, but, but I think it's best to understand this, that Paul's making a point. He's not able to choose which one, and he's not contemplating suicide. People have, have wrestled with that, like, is Paul thinking he might kill himself? Like, no, it's, it's a rhetorical point he's making. He, he's trying to, he's speaking big in order to convey something important. And the point is that Paul wants his readers to understand that death is not the end of the story. In fact, he argues that death is something that should not strike fear in us, but rather anticipation because upon dying, the follower of Jesus will be in the presence of our king. That's what he's getting at. That's what he wants to convey. That's what he wants us to understand as we read this passage. But Paul's also making the point, another point, that while he might prefer that, especially in light of the situation he finds himself, he says that it is more necessary on your account to remain alive. You see what Paul's doing? Paul's embodying the very message of Philippians. He's embodying the person and work of Jesus who left the presence of the Father so that he might enter creation and rescue his people. See, what Paul is not doing, he is not operating from selfish ambition or conceit. He is counting others more significant than himself. He is looking to the interests of others. He wants to be gone. He wants to be done. He wants to be in the presence of his king. That's all he wants. But he knows that what is more valuable is to remain. Why? Not because he likes life. I mean, he might. I don't, I don't want to jump too far into the mind of Paul. He might enjoy his life. And we've seen instances where he does enjoy himself. But what he's getting at is that remaining is better for others. Remaining is better for 
others. See, Paul is so caught up in the life of Christ that he fully understands that everything he does is about others. Everything he does is about others. Ultimately, it's about the glory of Christ, which we'll get to in a second. But secondarily, after that, it's about others. And, and my father-in-law used to sing this song with, with, uh, with Deanna, uh, Jesus and others and you, what a wonderful way to spell joy. And, and I think of that all the time. Thank you for that. that. Um, but that's the idea. That's our life. That, that's what we are to be about. We are to be about Christ, his glory, the good of others, and, and last is us. And notice, that's what enables him to rejoice. And in putting, in putting the Philippians first, he then receives from the Philippians. He receives prayers. He receives, he receives financial aid from the Philippians. Again, this goes back to that reciprocal relationship of gift giving in the ancient world, that, that gifts do have strings attached in a sense, where I give something to someone else and they give something back to me in return. And that's the relationship of Paul and the Philippian church. And he's experiencing that, and he's continuing to live in such a way that puts them first. Let's keep going. Next point, ample cause to glory in Christ. Verses 25 through 26. He says this, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ just because, Christ Jesus, because of my coming to you again. So it says that Paul is convinced that he will remain and continue with the Philippians. And we'll see next week that while he's convinced in his mind and heart, that doesn't mean he's guaranteeing it. As he says, whether I come and see you or am absent, but his desire and what he sees as most important is to be with the Philippian church. The question is why? It says why. So it's, it says that, remaining, that his remaining and coming to them is for their progress and joy in the faith. And we see Paul doing the same thing he's been doing. Again, his desire is for their growth. It's for them. And it's really interesting because their progress, that word progress, is the same word used in verse 12 for the advancement of the gospel. So basically what Paul is saying is that his life is marked by the advancement of the gospel, whether that is the purpose for evangelism and mission or for building up the saints of God. And so as we read this text, we need to, we need to take this challenge. As, as we look at the life of, of Paul and we see how he lives we need to then embody that same posture as fellow participants in this thing we call the faith of Christianity, right? We need to be about the advancement of the gospel. We need to proclaim Christ in both word and deed. We need to tell people that Jesus is the king. We need to call them to repent. We need to use opportunities, and we need to seize those opportunities to speak about the hope that we have within us, calling people to repentance, calling people to faith. That, that takes skill. That's an art form. That's not something we just go out with the loudspeaker and start screaming at people in downtown Tom's River. That's not what we do. We build relationships with people. We allow the Holy Spirit to bring about opportunities. And then when the opportunity comes, we speak. We speak. We speak boldly in the way Paul speaks, not shying away. We use our lives for the benefit of others, caring for people's needs, 
I mean, we're doing this, right, with, with Ukraine. We've done, this, we've done this with Operation Christmas Child. We do this through the open door. We do this in so many ways, and I want to continue to encourage us to keep doing this. But, but we must never forget that we do need to speak something. And that something is the good news, that Jesus is king and that in him there is forgiveness. We do need to speak that. But also the advancement of the gospel happens right here in the community of the faith where we encourage one another, we challenge one another, we allow one another to speak into our lives. That's hard. That's hard. Allowing someone to actually call us out because of of some sort of sin they might notice or some sort of habit they might notice. Why? So that we might be drawn near to Christ. Again, the advancement of the gospel. We're not only saved by the good news of Jesus, but we grow because of the good news of Jesus. We continue to go back to that story of redemption. We pray for one another because prayer is real. It's not merely just thinking of you. It's actually participating with God in the heavenly places to effect some sort of change here on earth. And verse 26 says, says, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. And so the entire section, the main point of this entire section, beginning in verse 12, is all about the glory of God of Christ. That's the point that all of this is driving towards. All of this is driving towards the glory and honor of King Jesus. Paul's joy, his confidence, the advancement of the gospel, his life, his death, the growth and progress of the Philippian saints all serve one goal, the glory and honor of King Jesus. That's what this whole thing is about. That we have been set aside as followers of Jesus to bring him honor and glory in everything we say, in everything we do. That's a high calling. It's a wonderful calling. It's a privilege, actually. It's an honor for us to be folded into that story, that our lives, our, our feeble lives, our broken lives might be used for the glory of the creator of all things, the creator and sustainer of all things. And we do it together. We do it together. Yes, there is an individual life we live as Christians. Of course there is. There's an individual prayer life. There's individual confession that needs to take place, individual growth. But we, we join with one another in this story. We join with one another in this story. And then our individual lives are affected because of one another. And I, and I, I mean, I think we've been catching that over, over the, the couple of years that I've been here. And, and I, I preach that a lot, that, that the church is a massively important thing, that we must never forget that, that this, this gathering of the saints, the life that we live together here at Redeemer Fellowship in this local community of faith is one of the primary ways that God is growing us in our faith. It's one of the primary ways. And what Paul is arguing here is that that happens when we pray for one another, when we bear one another's burdens. What he says in Ephesians, that happens when we, when we worship together, when we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ when we practice gratitude with one another. It's a high calling. It's a high calling. It's simple, right? This is often what we read in the Bible. It's simple, like to understand, but it's difficult to practice. 
It's simple to understand, but it's difficult to practice. And so as we close this morning, I want to bring before us what I think is the bread and butter of this passage. Yes, 100%, everything is about the glory of Christ. But the reason why Christ is glorified, why his name is worthy of being magnified throughout the entire earth is because of who he is and what he does. Who he is and what he does. We might not be in prison, and we might not be standing trial for our faith, but all of us are walking through a life where suffering and pain surround us. I mean all of us. I mean this week, aside from what's going on in the news, I've had a number of experiences of people going through difficult times. Difficult times. And that's just something we, we deal with. Some of us are experiencing that pain right now, whether it's physical, emotional, relationship, relational. And in the midst of that pain, we have to choose how we will respond. But that choice is not, is, that choice is not simply grounded in the power of positive thinking. It's firmly grounded and rooted in the promises of God and your willingness to receive from your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is where faith and humility come into the picture. The text is clear that his deliverance and his salvation, how God will preserve him until the end, regardless of what he faces, is dependent upon God's regular supply of the Spirit and the prayers of the saints. In other words, we need one another to make it through. We need one another to make it through, to remind us of who we are, to pray for us when we are weak, to care for our needs when we are unable to care for ourselves. Some of you in this room are going through a particularly difficult season. And God is promising to meet you in the midst of your pain. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit and the prayers of God's people, he will bring you comfort. And he promises that if you rely on him, you will not be put to shame. That's the encouragement of this passage. The challenge of this passage is to open ourselves up to one another, to allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to receive those prayers that God will use to turn our suffering into moments of redemption and salvation. There's also a challenge to be the ones used by God in the lives of those who are suffering. To take the time to pray for one another, to care for one another, to provide for one another when needed. We are the hands and feet of Jesus, the body of Christ. As I said a couple of weeks ago, we are not simply bound to Christ, nor are we simply bound to one another. But we are bound up together in Christ, locally here at Redeemer Fellowship in your community groups, on your ministry teams, but also globally with our brothers and sisters serving in Ukraine and the Czech Republic and all over the world. I was personally challenged in my own prayer life this week. As I studied this passage, I kept on going back to the fact that God, in some mysterious way, uses our prayers in conjunction with his Holy Spirit to keep us so that one day we might stand face to face with and so I want to try something before we do communion. I'm going to ask Cheryl to come up and play a song. And I want to challenge all of us that if, if you are in need of prayer this morning, if you are going through something that is overwhelming to you or even just a little overwhelming to you, 
I'm going to ask you to just slip your hand up and one of our elders or someone who is nearby you is going to pray for you. And I'm going to give us some time to just think through that. But I really want to challenge you. I really want to encourage you that if you are going through something right now, we are here. We are the body of Christ. We are a family. And we want to pray for you. And I know that the people who are going through stuff, they want to pray for others as well. Like, I know that. And I think our pride gets in the way. Or, or like we don't want to be a burden to somebody. But guess what? This is where we get to be a burden to people. Right here. And so I want to encourage you as Cheryl plays through the song, if there's something that you need prayer for, just slip your hand up. An elder um, or someone around you is going to come up to you and they're going to pray for you. Just come forward with the um, with communion. Father in heaven, Lord God, um, we thank you for the gift of prayer, Lord God, that we can come to you, that we can bear our burdens before you. Father, I thank you for the gift of the church, that we can bear our burdens to one another, and that we can carry one another in times of great difficulty, Lord God. Father, we, we see it modeled throughout the scriptures, Lord God. We see the need for one another everywhere, Lord God. God, I pray that we would lean into that as a church, Lord God, that we would not forget that we have, yes, been saved and called, and we have a personal relationship with you, Father, but we have been called to be a people who represent you here on earth, Lord God. Help us to never forget that. Help us to continue being a people who bear one another's burdens, Lord God. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your grace. Father, if there's anyone else who was just 
maybe nervous, Father, I pray for them right now, Lord God. I pray that you would be with them whatever it is that they're going through. Give them grace. Give them peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding, Lord. A peace that can only come from you. Lord, sustain them. Keep them. Carry them through, Lord God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.